This is the Bill Kelly Show podcast. I want to talk about uh, a motion that was passed by Hamilton City Council. Uh, and uh, it has to do with Albion Falls. Now, we haven't heard a whole lot of stories about Albion Falls. I guess the uh, the waterfall season, or at least, you know, running around with the waterfall season, I guess is starting to come to a close now that uh, people are back to school and back to work after the summer holidays. But uh, it's still a concern and still a situation that the uh, the city has to be dealing with. So the city uh, is allowing uh, its staff to apply to the Hamilton Future Fund for money to pay for design of a south access pathway and viewing platform at Albion Falls. Uh, well, uh, we'll get into the logistics of this in just a couple of seconds, but to, to do that, I want to bring uh, Ward 6 Councillor Tom Jackson uh, into, the, uh, into the discussion right now because this is right in his backyard, obviously, uh, as the uh, councillor for that area, and uh, he can give us some perspective on that. Councillor Jackson, how are you doing this morning? Bill, given the uh, summer season we're finally having in September, it's very appropriate to talk about the future of Albion Falls. Well, absolutely it is. Uh, And just because it hasn't been in the news doesn't mean that it's not still a popular tourist spot. We are the city of Waterfalls uh, for the the good or the bad, I suppose, and there's been some bad as a result Mm of this. Talk to us. You gave us an update a few weeks ago. I'd like you to talk to us and maybe give us a, a, a situational circumstance of what's going on here, where we are right now. Are the crowds still big? Is there still a concern? Is bylaw still patrolling there? What's going on there, Tom? Thanks, Bill. appreciate the opportunity to reconvene and uh, bring your uh, listeners an update. So just some statistical stuff that I have from our municipal law enforcement staff. And this would all be since July 17th of this year when council gave the unanimous support to begin some aggressive enforcement in light of the increased number of rope rescues and sadly the one death uh, in June of this year. So I can tell you, Bill, that from the parks bylaw standpoint, all since the uh, middle of July to now, we've issued about 137 uh, infraction tickets from the parks bylaw. We've also issued about close to 500 parking bylaw tickets for those that are parking illegally along and congesting the Mountain Brow Boulevard area and uh, spillover parking into neighborhood streets, things like that. Uh, I can tell you, though, Bill, that uh, this summer, over the last two months, since middle of July to now, uh, weekdays, we have a total of close to 6,100 visitors in total during the weekdays that are still exploring Albion Falls. And remember, we have something like 60 or 70 uh, major falls across our city, so this is all just earmarked at Albion. On weekends, we have, my stats show that we have still close to about 36,000 visitors since mid-July that have still been coming to Albion Falls and exploring. And our, parking, and our overall bylaw enforcement staff, since the aggressive enforcement began, they've put in a total of about five, over 500 coverage hours, Bill, and so that's over roughly eight, eight weeks. It would work out, if you will, to about 70 hours of enforcement for a seven-day uh, week period. And, uh, I, and also the tickets that have been issued, Bill, the parks bylaw tickets for trespassing, that's 137 I referenced earlier, um, we have discovered that about 90% of those tickets issued have been for those out of town, the Torontos, the Vaughns, the Cambridge areas, which is what we had suspected. People uh, seeing the websites, uh, wanting to visit Hamilton, great opportunities to uh, see the uh, amenities that our city has to offer, like the waterfalls. Uh, but unfortunately, many of them coming in, not knowing the terrain, if you will, like many Hamiltonians have done over the years, knowing where to go, where not to go. So overall, Bill, I'm saying that still a popular spot. 
I think enforcement is being effective and working. I mean, I've been thrilled not to jinx myself on your show this morning, but I've been thrilled basically over the last month or so not to wake up Monday morning to a call from Fire Chief Dave Cunliffe. And above all, our staff have been there regularly um, educating people, pointing out the directional signage, pointing out the safe lookout areas that they can view the falls from. So that's an update from the data, Bill, up to now. And that kind of dovetailed into, as you recall, Bill, my commitment on your show back in the summer, recognizing the fact, in spite of the no trespassing, the extra chain link fencing that we're putting up, the extra uh, enforcement, it was obvious to me and uh, many, many city hall watchers that people want to get as close to the water as possible. Unfortunately, many of them doing misadventures, taking risks that were unnecessary. So I made a commitment, Bill, to see if we could look at the feasibility of building a safe pathway from the Mud Street Mountain Brow Boulevard area. That would be on the south side of the falls. And I've mentioned this on your show uh, before, Bill, similar to what you and former Councillor Murray Ferguson about 12, 13 years ago when you were on council were good enough to support through the Hamilton uh, Future Fund the first legacy project at Albion, which were the two lookout platforms mm-hmm. on the, off the north parking lot. So this pathway and the possible feasibility of it, I see this as a legacy project too. And I was very pleased at Public Works Committee a week ago getting unanimous support so that it would give our city staff the authority, because staff on their own normally, unless requested, do not report to the Hamilton Future Fund. I'm not sure if all your listeners would know what the Hamilton Future Fund is, but maybe we'll we'll get into that that later. Yeah, but anyway, staff normally don't report, so they wanted to have the authority, and I must say that I was pleased that my committee colleagues gave unanimous support, all speaking that this is the type of project we think, if it's doable, would be a benefit to the city and enhanced tourism for the city. And Cynthia Graham, my manager of landscape architect in the city, and Kara Bunn, the manager of parks, they're the uh, co-drivers of the application that will be put into the future fund probably over the next few weeks. All right, let's 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 talk a little bit about some of the logistics here, okay? And I, I appreciate the, the background on that to bring us up to speed on what's going on. But it sounds like it's still a popular spot. It sounds like there's a, still an awful lot of people that are visiting that. But given the number of tickets that are being issued, Tom, it sounds like they're still not behaving themselves. Well, again, Bill, I think, again, just judging by the last month or so... I mean, I, I, res- um, I, I understand where you're coming from, that, that yeah. a lot of the tickets issued are for people from out of town, but I'm pretty sure in Vaughan or Mississauga that they understand what no trespassing means, yet they seem to ignore that, and no parking. Uh, yeah, fair enough, Bill. And so, you know what, given the fact that this has been an escalating issue over the last four or five summers in terms of the increased number of rope rescues... Um, I, it, this is obviously going to take a little while to uh, get the message across, get a strong deterrent across, and try to stem the tide of the people, the multitudes, if you will, Bill, before we put in the restrictive measures through this summer, before we did that, Bill, the multitudes that were coming there, and myself just watching hordes of people putting themselves in dangerous situations. That is decreasing. So the number of visitors that are, if you, if you, if you were to match up 137 uh, no trespassing violations against, I said, 36,000 weekend at 6,000 weekdays, so about 42,000 visitors in total from mid-July to now and issuing about 137 tickets. So, yes, that's a lot of no trespassing tickets. Yes, people still should be obeying the rules that have been set out by council and the, and the new restrictive fencing to get the message to go to safe places to watch and see the falls. 
But given the fact of 42,000 visitors since mid-July, Bill, I believe the message is effective and our measures taken up to now is, is doing what it was intended to do. All right. And then let's talk about what you'd like to see happen here. There already is a viewing platform, as you talked about, that the Future Fund uh, put the money out for some time ago. Uh, so that's there. Uh, now, you're talking about a design, first of all. That's going to be first step on this. $40,000. Now, you know, uh, Tom, that there's been a great deal of discussion at City Council over the last couple of weeks about the cost of consultants. Uh, who's doing yep. the design on this? Is it city staff or are you going to have to hire somebody outside again? It sounds like, Bill, it'll be a joint effort between staff and hiring outside. And, and Bill, by the way, the $40,000 was an original preliminary estimate, so I don't want to be held right to that number. It might, I'm going to be honest, it might be higher, but we'll see. Uh, I'm going to be meeting with um, with Cynthia and Kara in the next two or three weeks. All right, but when you say it might be exactly. higher, uh, does that mean yep. once the work comes in, you're going to get a bill that says, sorry, it was 90000 or you're going to get an estimate that may be higher than that and then make a decision as to whether or not you want to proceed? Well, Bill, when I, I understand, given the consternation and what's been uh, discovered in the last uh, few weeks and months here regarding outside consulting work and that and some that's been um, gone unchecked, but at least, Bill, anything that I've been involved in, I usually, in my motions, I use the word upset limit. And I do that deliberately, Bill, to ensure that staff are held to the amount. And if I can get council's approval for that upset limit, that if anything goes over, then they've got to find it internally within the department. So, Bill, this is a first step. Again, the popularity of the falls. You know, Bill, we, we, we love bragging about our city. So I was committed to at least seeing that we need to take a step towards design, and if I can get um, the design money approved at the Hamilton Future Fund, and that was money, as you recall, from amalgamation time, a board of directors that set up a, a combination of our citizens appointed and four or five members of council, then at least let, uh, if the money's approved, and we'll see what the money is, and believe me, Bill, I wish it could all be done internally with in-house staff. I have stressed that. To the uh, to the managers, and, and why can't um, why can't they do it internally? Well, then? well, I think Bill, when they uh, come out with the final application and the submission, I think they will have to. Uh, they would be able to best explain Bill in front of the Hamilton Future Fund. And by the way, I'm not on that board, but I will obviously be attending that day to advocate for support of it. Um, Bill, I, I they'll have to explain why uh, they may need some outside expertise. Bill, you got to appreciate. I know you do that this type of pathway coming along the escarpment's edge, um, if I can use an analogy, to build the East Mount Rail Trail and escarpment stairs about 10 years ago off of Mountain Brow Boulevard opposite Margate Avenue down to the bottom of the Kenilworth Access, those stairs 10 years ago costed $700,000. The lookout platforms that we built 12, 13 years ago at Albion costed 500000 So if we were to do, and General Manager Dan McKinnon, had a very ballpark preliminary amount of about a million dollars. That's what he told us on this program, pathway. yeah. Correct. Well, Bill, that kind of investment, I'll tell you, I would definitely want some experts involved to say, if you're going to do it, here's how to properly and safely do it. So we'll see, Bill, exactly where the final dollar amount comes in. I'm hoping and I'm stressing with staff to try to do as much as possible in-house. All right. But that's the design. The $40,000, I want our listeners to be clear, is for the design. Uh, then, of Correct. course, council's going to have to make a decision as to whether or not they're going to get a million dollars or whatever it's going to be to actually Correct. build this thing. And and, and, and then you're going to go, now, when you get a dollar figure, then you're going to go to the future fund and say, can you can you pony up the money for this? Is that the process? 
that's the process, Bill. That would be a two-step process if we can get the design money approved, if we do. And, of course, any future fund uh, recommendation is ultimately ratified by council. And then afterwards, if that's approved over the next few weeks, then I would suspect about six months to a year from now with uh, the final designs and options coming forward, then, then it will be a capital budget submission. By the way, Bill, by going through the Hamilton Future Fund, that does not, it's all taxpayer money, absolutely. But it doesn't impact the list of projects that are on the city's capital uh, budget submissions. And it doesn't impact any of the ward budgets or my other colleagues' projects that are going through the uh, normal annual operating and capital uh, budget. Well, it doesn't, have, it doesn't have an impact on the, yeah, we, we understand that. It doesn't have an impact on the levy because it's a pot of money that's already been sitting there. And yes, Correct. it is taxpayers' money, but it came from hydro dividends, and we, we, we get all that. I think I, I hope most people understand the logistics. But here's here's the Fair overriding enough. question, though, Tom, and, and okay. I don't know where in this process this question is going to get answered, but I think it's a question that needs okay. to be answered. Is the city going to go through with this? And if they're going to commit to spending, say, a million dollars, it may be more, but at least a million dollars for another pathway and walk. What's is there any guarantee that this is going to stop this uh, this this dangerous activity of people hopping fences? I mean, there's there's a platform right there now, and there's lots of signage right there, and lots of fencing right there, and people are ignoring it. I mean, are we going to spend a million dollars just so people have more fences to hop over? Well, Bill, that's uh, that's a question, I guess. In other words, is this really addressing the? the pro- is it really addressing the problem? Well, Bill, in my observations uh, leading into this summer and into the uh, restrictive measures and the fencing, the additional fencing and directional signage and enforcement and, and signs that we put up, I, I, I went over to the North parking lot watching from the local platforms that exist, which is a, a fair bit uh, away from the actual water, but a beautiful view, panoramic view. But there's the point, and I, Tom, to your, to the, yes. and that's exactly what I'm referring to. The people yes. that are doing what they're doing here and getting the tickets and putting themselves in danger, frankly, don't yep. want to be there. They want to be right on top of the darn thing, and they're going to hop the fence and do this anyway. So is another platform actually going to make it more safe for people, or is it simply just going to be a million dollars that's going to sit there while people continue to climb over top of those fences and put themselves in peril? What I've heard from the community, Bill, and from even um, some of the stakeholders like um, Greg Lenko, who uh, started the escarpment project, does great cleanup at the Albion Falls. I've stayed in consultation with groups like his and our staff at the Bruce Trail, the Hamilton Conservation Authority. I think there's a proper way, Bill, to help people to get closer to the falls safely, sanctioned, built by the city. And obviously, Bill, a more... um, it would be more appropriate for this kind of closer viewing to come in from the south side off Mud Street where the bend is, where Mountain Brow Boulevard becomes Mud Street there off that south side. So whereas the lookout platforms are off the north side are a nice, beautiful, long-distance panoramic view. It, it, you, if you watched on a given weekend before the fencing went up, and yes, they're still trespassing, but much less to what it was before the restrictive measures, it's obvious that most of the people were coming in off the top of the brow and going as, trying to get as closely down to the water from the south side as possible. So, Bill, I, look, I think it's worth uh, the investigation. And uh, as we're trying to, continue. part of this, Bill, I was low to going down this path, as you know, of legislating human behavior. I didn't want to deter people from visiting our city. Many people have suddenly discovered that Hamilton's a great place to work, live, play, and visit. And so it was a conundrum. 
as the as the increased amount of popularity and visitors at the falls were occurring, which was a positive for our city, uh, people discovering the beauty and majesty of our city. The, uh, the, the other side, the double-edged sword, the other side, unfortunately, was it created a much greater challenge because people just simply weren't being careful. Well, they were being and, careless, and, reckless. and therein lies the problem. Uh, we're just about out of time. Uh, obviously, a lot more that has to be discussed about this, and I guess you'll have to get some numbers, and, and uh, that preliminary report, I guess, is going to be the catalyst for that, uh, that further conversation. Tom, always appreciate your time. Thanks for uh, joining us on the program today. Bill, if this comes to fruition, I think it's a fabulous opportunity to continue to enhance the the city of Hamilton. But thanks again. Look forward to a future chat. You betcha. Ward 6 Councillor Tom Jackson talking about Albion Falls. You're listening to The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on AM 900 CHML. A Mayor's Town Hall. Burlington Mayor Rick Goldman joins us for the Mayor's Town Hall. And first of all, great to see you again. Thanks so much. It's great to be back, Bill. Thank you. you you've been all over the place in the last little while, so uh, it's, it's good to finally hook up with you and get you back here on Terra Firma because you've been uh, down in the States doing a lot of stuff. Uh, you've been to Detroit. I want to talk to you about that because uh, Detroit's been an interesting topic of discussion uh, for a number of reasons here in the last couple of days. Uh, first of all, why did you go there? What did you see? So one of my uh, council don't, don't say a Tigers game. Right? It, it, no, I didn't go to for a Tigers game. I mean, if they were in town, I probably would. I know but, you would. But <laughs> but, but uh, no, uh, one of my colleagues on council, uh, Paul Sharman, yep. uh, has a connection with the Presbyterian Retirement Villages of okay. of, uh, of Michigan, and Paul was at a meeting, I believe, in March in, in Washington D.C., and uh, and he re- renewed acquaintance with his uh, longtime friend, who's the chair of the board, and uh, you know, recognizing that. Uh, Burlington and Halton region, we are extremely interested in providing more housing for seniors and recognizing in Burlington, uh, we have a burning platform in the fact that one third of the people in Burlington are 55 plus, 19% are over age 65. And we know that the number of people age 80 plus is going to quadruple, uh, quadruple in the next uh, 20 years. So the need to plan for seniors housing has never been more apparent than it is today. So Paul, having this contact, he shared shared with me the idea of going down to Detroit and visiting with representatives of the Presbyterian retirement homes of our villages of Michigan. Uh, and so we did. We took the opportunity to go down, and uh, we learned a lot uh, from what happens down in, in Michigan. I w- we were really surprised to hear one of the takeaways is the fact that 30% of seniors' residences or retirement homes in the state of Michigan are operated by the not-for-profit non-government sector. And it may be 5% in Ontario. It's a very, very small how did, percentage. How did they get such a good buy-in? Well, you know, the, the, the history of the retirement uh, villages of Michigan for the Presbyterian Church is, is uh, got a long history. And originally they were providing retirement homes or seniors' residences for the widows of, of ministers. And it just expanded from there over, over many, 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 many decades. And now they have fundraising that goes on. They raise a lot of money for the capital programs, raise a lot of money for the operating programs. And... Uh, um, you know, they're able to provide 5,000 units. This, this Presbyterian Retirement Villages of Michigan are able to provide 5,000 units in the state of Michigan um, for people 65 plus. And then we met with representatives of the United Methodist Retirement Homes as well, who have 1,600 uh, units uh, as well. But more importantly, that, or equally as important to that, is we had a discussion about a program they have in Michigan, and it's all over the state. It's called the Program of All Inclusive Care for the Elderly. In order to qualify this, for this program, um, you have to be eligible for long-term care. 
And the objective of the program is to provide you with enough supports that you do not have to go into long-term care. So recognizing that in Ontario, a lot of the services that are provided to seniors are siloed. Uh, this is one portal, one organization that uh, you apply to, to be part of, and they get you whatever you need. If you need um, mobility devices, they get it for you. If you need nutritional guidance, they get it for you. If you need occupational therapy or physiotherapy, they help out with that. Um, they, if you eventually need long-term care, they will address that issue. But that's, that's the polar opposite of what we do here. We institutionalize our long-term care. Can, well, you know, you, you've qualified, yeah, you, you need long-term care. Okay, you have to qualify. Now you apply to that facility or this facility. It's, it's home delivery down there. That's a, that's a great idea. Yeah, and, and this is what we have to do more here. And, and you know, we've had a lot of meetings with uh, staff of the region, the city, uh, since we've been back, and other people in the sector. And uh, uh, there seems to me a big appetite to to go down the path and possibly have a pilot project where we can provide housing as well as supports in the same facility. And the supports would be not for just people in the housing units. Uh, in the development, they would be more widespread than that. So there's you know adult daycare programs for people with Alzheimer's or some form of dementia where who are still living with loved ones where the loved ones may go off to work. Well, there's a place for their loved ones to be uh, to be housed during the day and provided with all sorts of programming and support. So it's quite intriguing. It's quite uh, inspiring uh, what they're doing. And clearly, with what's going on in Canada, what's going on in Ontario, what's going on in, in, you know, in our population in the, in the western part of the Greater Toronto Hamilton area, we are aging. We are ever increasing our, our average age. The number of people over age 80 is going to quadruple in the next uh, 20 years. The need has never been more important and more apparent than it is now. So the time to take action is now. So we hope to um, engage a number of people this fall and uh, at some point uh, have some sort of announcement as far as uh, an approach we're going to take. But but we can learn so much from them. Uh, you know, we always have this, I think, uh, preconceived notion that uh, healthcare down in the States is just terrible. Uh, they do some things pretty well, and they, and that's obviously one of them and something that, that we could learn a lot from. Uh, you're right, we are aging, and we all need more help, of course, as we get older. We all know that we spend a lot more of our health care dollars. The money in health care that's spent on us is, is a lot more, the, you know, the older that we get. But you also have seen the stats, I'm sure, Mr. Mayor, that say what 95% of the people said they'd rather stay at their, in their homes if oh, they absolutely. can. They don't want to go to an institution if they don't have to. Yeah. And why not deliver those services? We're not there yet here in Ontario. What a great <laughs> idea. No, we're not there. And, and, you know, you need, and if you're going to stay in your home, you need a lot more than one or two hours of, of home care. We, yeah, that's it. Uh, like you need a, a meaningful – you need whatever you need. And I guess what, that's what was unique about this program. It's not one size fits all. You know, they triage the needs of, of the people that they're serving. They get a flat amount per person for the people they serve from the state government and, and the federal government uh, and they provide the, these different services and they triage the needs and uh, they're able to really uh, help out uh, a lot of people in a very meaningful way. One of the reasons that uh, we were talking about Detroit earlier this week, I had uh, Councillor Matthew Green on from uh, the downtown area from Ward 3 here in Hamilton. Uh, he's talking about the mini houses and uh, in, in, uh, some of them in course in streets and courts and, and in alleyways but there's that that's happening in Detroit already. They've got these little they're they're small places, and I guess it's you know for 
one or two people or maybe three or whatever the case may be. But it's a very effective use of space as opposed to building institutional places, as you say. Some people don't want to live in a high-rise. They just like to have their own little space like that. Well, you know, the whole area of, of housing and affordable housing is a, is a very challenging one. And, and certainly, Hamilton, the prices have gone up significantly. There's so much good things happening in the city of, of Hamilton and Burlington. We've been challenged with affordable real estate for some time. So we need to look at uh, alternatives. And when you're running out of space, you have to be very creative in how you find alternatives and recognizing in the city of Burlington, there's very few ground-oriented housing opportunities left. There's just the odd... Uh, infill project that comes along. So uh, we need to be open. We need to be willing to look at uh, all sorts of ideas. Uh, Ron Foxcroft was on the uh, station the other day, too. He was a keynote speaker at that huge economic conference uh, that was held earlier this week. You were there, too. Uh, I don't think I was, Bill. Uh, Really? I I don't think I was. I'm not sure what you're referring to. My understanding was that uh, the one in Toronto that you had attended that as well, uh, where Ron was the keynote speaker. But what it was talking about here, and and the the crux of it, of course, was that uh, that it's the first time, actually, this conference has been outside of the United States, and they chose the the GTA, the Toronto area, but it was a focus about Hamilton, Burlington, Toronto, and and the the hub that's starting to develop here right now. And, And Burlington, not just geographically, but I guess from a business standpoint, points right in the middle of that too because of, of some of the innovation that's going on in, in Burlington right now. Yeah, absolutely. And I was at a uh, celebration last night. We have, you know, McMaster has Lion's Lair yep. and there's Dragon's Dan. Well, in Burlington, we have Python's Pit. <laughs> and and uh, there was a celebration for the tremendous community effort that's gone on in Burlington with Python's Pit last night at our tech place. When our tech place is our innovation and technology center that was established in June. We opened it in June. And already we have uh, uh, two companies that are housed there and a lot of other representatives of different companies and young entrepreneurs come into the center as needed. And uh, we certainly see that that tech place is not just a Burlington Center, it is a regional center. I know that the uh, the mayor of Oakville was uh, visiting there recently, Rob Burton, and he's very supportive of, of regional efforts to promote the great workforce that we have in the Western GTA, which includes uh, Oakville, Hamilton, and, and uh in Burlington. Well, we're getting smarter about that, aren't we? I mean, it used to be Hamilton versus Oakville versus Burlington versus Toronto versus KW. And and we're starting to think regionally now when it comes to this sort of thing that, uh, that you know, the old adage that all boats rise with high tide. In other words, bring those businesses, bring the that entrepreneurship uh, to this area and everybody benefits from that, uh, whether it's the DeGroote School, whether it's your own innovative center along that's working really in partnership with the one here in Hamilton now. Uh, and I understand there's also been some uh, some efforts now to try to do some collaborations with what's going on in KW. So it, it, it is a big tech center now as opposed to trying to do this on a one-off basis. Yeah, absolutely. And, and there's a good example of, of communities working together in Toronto Global, which is formerly the Greater Toronto Area Marketing Alliance. Um, and Toronto Go- Global is coordinating an effort to attempt to get some interest with Amazon. And uh, in Halton Region, we were asked to submit some, some sites for consideration. We've done that. Uh, we've come up with three different sites, as well as uh, Brampton and Markham, and, and uh, some others have come up with sites. And Toronto Global is going to vet them and, and put the best, the best one forward, or the best couple forward. You know, and recognizing whether, you know, if, if we're able to land Amazon, I would say anywhere, in the greater Toronto Hamilton area. Well, how many jobs are they talking about? Talking 50,000 jobs. Yeah. So, and the ancillary jobs that are created, the population based jobs to, that provide services to an increase of, in the workforce, it's not just increasing workforce for population, it's 
you know the families that are that are you know part of uh, the the Amazon family, not the people that work there, but the f- the families of the people that work there. So potentially, you know, there could be 150,000 people that have would have an Amazon connection, 50,000 people that work there, and 100,000 family members. Um, so that's a significant impact uh, in a positive way on the whole Greater Toronto Hamilton area, wherever it goes. And I would prefer it goes west of Toronto, not not east or north, but um, Nonetheless, though, we want it to happen. And whether, again, if it's whether it's east or north or west, uh, it, it would be a good thing. Well, I know, because I've seen some of the stories uh, this morning, as I'm sure you have too, that say, well, it's uh, Denver and Calgary that seem to have the inside track. Uh, I don't know who, you know, what their criterion is. I mean, they, I know they published some data as to what they're kind of looking for here, but a lot of cities kind of march into that. And uh, But your point's well taken about the regional impact that that would have, because even if you look at where the in- initial Amazon uh, operation is out there in Seattle, it's not one building. It, it's all over that area. There are right. campuses and, and, and centers all over that area, and you would anticipate that if they're going to do an Amazon 2 same sort of thing. It's not just going to be one structure that's going to be located in in Halton or in Hamilton or, or whatever. If it was to be in this area, uh, the spillover effect is going to be enormous. I would think. Uh, you know, definitely it, it would be significant. But you know, you look at the parameters and the criteria they're looking for, and you know, the Greater Toronto Hamilton area. You're going to add a lot of tick marks to the boxes there. I mean, the educated workforce, the um, uh, you know, as far as having the, the land available, um, being close to an international airport. Um, there are all sorts of uh, benefits that the Greater Toronto Hamilton area offers. Well, I mean, Pearson speaks for itself. But Hamilton International Airport is the largest cargo carrying airport in Canada as well. Uh, we've got water transportation here, and that's starting to come into vogue again. Uh, short sea shipping is very big. We already have the rail stuff here, and we do tick off a lot of boxes. And transportation's got to be a key. I mean, Amazon's fabulous, but distribution's got to be a key to that as well. Uh, distribution's is critically important. Obviously, and, and you know, they're in Amazon. Seattle, and they're saying, well, we want to do something that's going to be a little more expansive and a little more practical for our North American operations. Well, why would they only go halfway across the continent then uh, to, to a Detroit or to Calgary? Uh, they're still going to have technical uh, challenges. So who knows? Here I am making the case for it, and I don't even know what they're going to do yet. But it's an exciting time, though, isn't it? And, and to know that, hey, you know what? At least you're in there pitching. No, absolutely. Absolutely. And we get a chance to promote the uh, the great value, the great uh, quality of life that's in the greater Toronto-Hamilton area and the great economic opportunities that are here, whether Amazon comes here or not. There's a, there's a lot more happening. Uh, we're going to do a short time out in a couple of seconds here and, and get into some of the other things that are happening in the city proper. Don't forget, though, that we will open the lines up. Uh, for your questions or your comments for uh, Burlington Mayor Rick Goldwing, 905-645-3221. That's our number, 905-645-3221. If you're on a cell phone, it's toll-free, star 9900. Email bkelly at 900chml.com, or you can get us on Twitter at chmlbillkelly. Uh, and uh, your tweets, your comments, uh, one uh, from, uh, where are we going here? Uh, for the mayor, it's time for the mayor's town hall. Um, oh, yeah, uh, memo to Mayor Goldwing. This is from Patrice. Uh, on uh, Twitter. Uh, to Mayor Goldwing and to Mayor Eisenberger, forget about Amazon. As long as uh, Wynn and Trudeau devour a good business climate, uh, you're done for. Um, that, the, his point, <laughs> I understand the cynicism here, but you know, it's, he raises an interesting point about federal and provincial government involvement in attracting businesses like this, which is a key factor. It's a little, I think, premature to talk about this right now because there are a number of Canadian cities that have expressed interest in this. But you got to think, though, Mr. Mayor, that when that gets narrowed down, and if they say, for instance, yeah, your 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 position's in play here, you got to figure that the feds in the province are going to step up and say, what can we do to help? 
Oh, absolutely, yeah, absolutely. You know, you look at the requirement to to get fifty thousand people to work in a in one area. You look at that; it's mind-boggling the transit that's required. So, I don't know if there's any any uh, any area that would have that requirement in place right away. You'd have to work towards that. So. Uh, no, you could. You can't do this alone as the Greater Toronto Area, Greater Toronto, Toronto Hamilton Area. You need to do this in concert with the uh, federal government and the provincial government. Absolutely. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show weekdays from nine to noon on AM 900 CHML. The Mayor's Town Hall with Burlington Mayor Rick Goldring. Just before the break, uh, Mr. Mayor, we were talking about mobility hubs. Now you, you mentioned this to us a couple of months ago, and I know that you're going to have some public sessions about this, about identifying where those hubs are going to be and, and how they can be a net benefit to the community. Where are you with that now? Well, there, there has been a whole bunch of work done in articulating and, and different plans with regard what should go where in the different mobility hubs. So just to remind everybody, we have four mobility hubs that we've identified in the city. Uh, one is our downtown and the other three around the GO stations, the Appleby, the Aldershot, and the Burlington GO stations. And we have had public meetings about three of the four. The only one we haven't had a public meeting about in the stage two of the engagement is Appleby as far as what the preliminary plan could look like. But we have a great dialogue about downtown, great dialogue about Aldershot, along with the area around the Burlington Go. And the objective of all these areas is to bring more people, to bring more jobs, to bring more commercial activity and more public amenity space and really create, you know, the feeling, uh, an urban feeling in these areas. You know, the people in, in downtown Burlington who love there and work there, um, love it because you get to walk everywhere. And, and it's one of the unexpected benefits for me and being a, a councillor or mayor and having my office and right in downtown Burlington is all the places I can, I can walk to. I can walk to get my hair cut. I walk to my, see my accountant. I walk to, to my lawyer. Um, I walk to restaurants. I walk to the waterfront. I walk to meetings at the art gallery, the hospital, uh, the performing arts center, the senior center. Uh, I can walk up the street to Don Smith's and pre-plan my funeral. So there's there's all sorts of things that you can walk to, and the people that live there, same thing. So we want to create more of that, and uh, we want to give more people the opportunity to live in downtown, and we want to create that feeling in around the three GO stations uh, in the city. Well, we've seen uh, the potential for that already, and uh, you talk about the Burlington GO station, of course, and the potential there is unlimited. There's a whole lot of open space, and I know you've had some talk about residential, high-rise residential there, uh, and and you, you're really kind of starting with a, a clean palette there, aren't you, that you, you can start to build where you want there, uh, whereas some other cities are going to have the challenge of trying to retrofit what they want to do right now. Yeah, we're fortunate because there is some sort of open space yeah. there. I mean, it's, it's privately owned, but it, it, it's it's relatively open, meaning that there's not a lot of development, not a lot of development on some of the areas. You know, one of the challenges we have in the city of Burlington is that there's nothing simple or easy about uh, development because it's really redevelopment. We're redeveloping Mm -hmm. areas that already uh, exist. And the Aldershot uh, Mobility Hub represents a wonderful opportunity, you know, centered around the the Plains Road and LaSalle Park Road or Plains Road and Waterdown Road area and going all the way up uh, to the Aldershot Go and the areas around it. And uh, we, we have seen a couple different preliminary concepts about where the height and density should go. And staff will come back and bring something definitive uh, for council to consider in the new year. What about that when that, that discussion is taking place? Uh, at what point do you bring the, the private sector into, into that discussion and bring them to the table? Because you're talking about two of the hubs right there. Uh, that have huge potential, but there's some large portions of land in both of those hubs 
that are privately owned right now. And I know that those folks are sitting by saying, well, what's the city planning and what are we going to do that's going to try to complement what's going on there? So a lot of the landowners are already uh, working at, at trying to find uh, alternatives. So there's one particular landowner in the area of Aldershot um, that would like to move their business to another location and, 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 and sell or develop their existing property. One of the challenges we have is trying to find some additional land um, for that particular uh, a business owner, and, and it's not easy, but they're already working on it. So um, for many, uh, many owner, landowners, they have been engaged. There's more uh, ownership engagement uh, yet to come as we develop our plans and as we approve our plans because it's one thing to have a good plan. It's another thing to implement a plan. So we have to make sure that the plans we come up with, the secondary plans around our mobility hubs, can actually be implemented. Now, the other part of that, of course, is it's one thing to establish mobility hubs, and some of them, are, I guess, are, are self-evident when you look at the goal line, for instance. Uh, and downtown is, is better be a mobility hub for just about every community, I would think. But I guess part B of that, Mr. Mayor, has to be, okay, now how do you develop transportation between those hubs? That is that is a that is a challenge. And I had the preliminary update from our planning staff with regard to the downtown mobility hub. And, and what they showed me was uh, very interesting, and I'm intrigued by it, and I see lots of potential there. Um, I said, tell me about the transportation impact. T- uh, like, have we quantified the impact? Have we quantified what we need to do to mitigate the impact of having more people and more jobs uh, in our downtown. So we have much work to do on that. Uh, We did have a transit workshop actually two weeks ago yesterday where we looked at the whole concept of ridership versus coverage. And ridership means you focus your routes on the routes that are going to give you the most ridership. Coverage means you focus on areas where you try to cover as much of the city as you can, but recognizing as you do that, you're going to be going into suburban neighborhoods that doesn't have the density to probably justify transit. So council is very much intrigued by the idea of having a frequent, having frequent transit corridors where you have service every 15 minutes on key routes in the city. We have to go in that direction. We will go in that direction. It's going to take us some time uh, to get there. But we need to have meaningful transit in place before people move into the areas. Because if it comes in after they moved in, they've already established their travel habits. You need to have it, you need to invest in it before you have significant growth uh, in a certain area. So the transportation issue is, is big, um, needs to be addressed. And a big part of that will be making transit desirable. And how do you make transit desirable? Making sure that it's frequent enough and on time enough for people to use. Well, you know, we've had this debate in Hamilton and Burlington and just about every city, I guess, obviously. And time and time and time again, the two things I always hear from people that say I never use transit is it's not affordable, it's not convenient. So uh, those are the, the two big, I guess, hurdles or, or challenges that I guess every city faces. If you can overcome those two, then you, you've got a transit user. Well, exactly. And that's why you need to have the transit in sooner as opposed, opposed to later. One of the questions I ask, because we our two mobility hubs, our Burlington Go area and the, and the downtown area, are, are really linked. I mean, it's not they're not far apart. And recognizing that there's going to be significant growth planned around the Burlington Go station as well as the downtown, we need a, a, a major transit link there, even if it's just going from Burlington Go to downtown and back on a regular basis. And our consultant with regard to transit says, when you have such a short distance, you need significant frequency, even a 10-minute 10 10-minute frequency, so that people, when they get off the GO train or in the, they're in certain areas, they want to go in other areas, they know that the bus is only no more than 10 minutes away. 
So when you have that sort of frequency, I believe it makes transit very desirable. And it, you've seen this happen. I, I think I mentioned it. We have a daughter that lives up in the Barrie area right now. And, of course, there's a, a go hub there right, there right down by the waterfront. Well, there's two of them in town, but one right by the waterfront in downtown Barrie. Uh, and, and transit just it it just coerces around. It's all over the place. In other words, they know that when people get off that train, they want to go someplace. They don't want to hang. I mean, the waterfront's beautiful, but they don't want to hang around there, especially in jo- January and February, waiting for something. So you have to concentrate your transit usage right down in that downtown core. And yeah. that's a challenge because, let's face it, it costs money to do that sort of thing. And frequency sounds like a wonderful thing to do. And we let's have 10 minutes or 15 minutes. That means more buses, more staffing, and that means more money. It does. It does. And one of the things we're looking at with Burlington Transit, we're not going to make this decision for the 2018 budget year, but we will be looking at is do we give up some, some low ridership coverage areas and use those resources to help contribute to the high-frequency corridors. Does that make sense to do? And we're going to be engaging the public to, to have that discussion because if you focus your transit you know, with regular frequency, like 15-minute service, in the areas that can attract the most people, you do get the biggest bang for your buck. You do have the, the most significant impact. But the downside is people that live farther away from a major transit corridor may not get the service that they have. So how do we address that issue? So we have a, a lot of things to consider. The, the, our focus in the short-term bill is is uh, addressing some operational deficiencies in Burlington Transit uh, because we had staff do a complete analysis of, of transit. We need to invest more money to allow more headways. And so headway is when you, when a, uh, when you finish a route and you got to turn around and go on another route. Mm-hmm. Um, if you're behind, if you're late when you finish your route, you're late when you're starting the next route, and the whole thing compounds. Well, we found out that two-thirds of our routes are in that situation. So we now need to deploy more resources to allow those headways, to allow the, the drivers to catch up and get back on track if they're, if they're behind. We also found out that we're not spending as much on maintenance as, as, other, uh, as other transit authorities. So we have to increase our investments in, in maintenance. So our focus currently at the, for the balance of this year and for the 2018 budget is really to focus on these operational deficiencies, bringing transit up to uh, a certain standard uh, that we haven't had. And then for 2019, uh, we will be considering expanding our network. What's driving this? And there's an interesting demographic uh, situation that's in, in developing in Burlington, or it has been developing in Burlington. Uh, and let's talk a little bit about the downtown core in that regard, Mr. Mayor. Uh, it's it, There's just a, a block on either side, of course, of the, of the main streets there. These mature neighborhoods, nice, beautiful older houses. Uh, and and a, a pretty significant seniors population in, in that area. But there has been a, a huge growth, as there has in Hamilton over the last little while, of millennials that are moving to the downtown core right now. I would imagine it, that they bring with them a certain set of demands about what they want to see their downtown core look like. They've adopted Burlington. Some of them are coming there from other areas right now, love what the downtown uh, Burlington core looks like right now. But, you know, they figure, okay, we've made an investment, we've bought here, or we're renting here right now, here's what we want to see. And I'm sure you're hearing from them now. Oh, I am hearing from them. In fact, last night I had the, the first uh, Marriage Millennial Advisory Committee for this sort of season, which starts in September and goes to, goes to June. And uh, so this is the second, second year of meetings. We had a great discussion last night about downtown and the waterfront hotel site. And it's interesting, you know, people of, of, of my vintage, I, I just turned 60, so uh, people my age are a little bit older or a lot older in some cases. 
Uh, really, some of us have a vision of Burlington back when it was more like a village and want to maintain that and have a hard time with seeing 20-story buildings going up in our, in our downtown. Um, not the millennials. They don't have the same issue. They, they appreciate the opportunities that more people in a downtown area bring, more people in a mobility hub area bring, because the more people, the more services, the more amenities you can offer or the private sector can offer uh, to the people that live there. So uh, the, the fear of height and density is generally not there. Uh, with the younger part of our population, which is very interesting. They also want to, to ride their bikes more. They also want to use transit more and not be reliant on their cars as much. Now, having said that, that is not for every millennial. I mean, there's degrees of, of viewpoints. Um, but more and more, uh, a younger demographic is more accepting of the fact that urbanization is a good thing. I, and, and by the way, I'll just lay this out here, uh, that a lot of the, that fear about high-rise development is unfounded. I mean, it, it does work, and it can be compatible. And, and you've seen that even down by the waterfront in Burlington over the last number of years, uh, where you've got commercial that are, are on ground floor and doing very successfully. Uh, then you've got businesses or residences or, or other, uh, you know, could be commercial enterprises, I guess, in the floors above that. Uh, uh, and you look just even what's happening around City Hall right there. Yeah. You talked about the Arts Center. you got Panfresco right beside that, which is thriving right now. Yeah. Uh, you've got that fabulous row of restaurants right down by the waterfront across from Spencer Smith Park. And then you've got this hotel, the, the proposed development anyway, that's happening. Uh, and it can work. Uh, I know often people say, well, it's, it's incongruent with the way Burlington used to be. But you, you can work with developers, can't you, to, to try to find some middle ground there? Absolutely. You know, one of the things we try to talk about and sometimes gets lost is, what does a building look like? So let's forget about the height for a moment, just for a moment, like forget about the height, and let's look at how it looks. Let's look at the design of the building. Let's look at the amenities that are in the building. Let's look at how the building connects with the street. And what I mean by that is, you know, when you walk by it at, at ground level, is it interesting to look at? You know, are, are the way the, the shops are set up, are the, are, is the way the retail is set up and the, and the restaurants and the pubs and the cafes, does that make it desirable to, to go into those particular retail establishments? And when you have some public space and you have some, some seating areas along the sidewalk and some planters that really gives it a nice walkable feeling. We need to consider that. It's a welcoming feeling. Exactly. We need to consider those amenities. Exactly. We need to consider those amenities as much as anything when we're, when we're making uh, development uh, decisions. And and I know that can be difficult sometimes. I know that, uh, that Councillor Ferguson in Ancaster was always telling us about uh, old Wilson Street, old Ancaster. This is beautiful with the cut stone fronts on, on so many of these historic buildings. And years ago, I guess, uh, there was some commercial developer that wanted to move in there. And they said, well, here's what we want to do. And they said, well, no, no, no. It's got to look like, like the street. No, no, that's not how we build them. And we build them. And they said, well, if you want to build here, you're going to have to do that. And they found some middle ground. And it's gorgeous. It's compatible with the existing architecture and infrastructure. Yep. And you can do that if, as long as you sit down and work you, with them. You can do that. You, you know, I think that developers want to deliver a good product. Yes, they want to make money for sure, but they want to deliver a good product. I mean, that's how they make money is when they do deliver a good product. So, yes, the vast majority of developers you can work with and you can negotiate with and, and to come up with uh, uh, desirable outcomes. Listen, we've only got a minute or two left. I, I, you've mentioned the Waterfront Hotel project, so have I. Where are you with that right now? So uh, very quickly, uh, back in 1986, uh, the hotel was uh, constructed. It's a seven-story 
uh, hotel, the Waterfront Hotel. It's a two, almost a two-acre site. And in our official plan, it states that in order for any redevelopment to be considered, there must be a public process. And the public process would consider a, um, a recommendation or a proposal from the developer, as well as two other proposals made through a public process. So we've had meetings actually last week with regard to um, the three concepts that, that have been derived. And now there's an emerging concept uh, being established that will be presented to council for discussion in, in November. We've got a long way to go with that. But uh, at, I tell you, that's a very controversial site, Bill. 1.9 acres right on our waterfront. There's people that don't want to see any development there. We have to recognize it's not our land. Uh, we don't own it. Um, so for there to be no development there, we have to write a check for it, obviously. Um, so is there a possibility that we can get some development on that site that would give enough public amenity space that would um, bring a lot of public benefit um, and create development that's uh, compatible and acceptable in the area. Well, and there could be ramifications to this too, depending on what goes on there, because I know that there are other developers that have properties nearby there right. that are watching this to say, well, let's see what they allow them to do here, and then we may have to modify what we want to do, or we may just go full bore into what we want to do. Yeah, no, <laughs> you know, there, there's so much I, going on. I don't, I don't want to say Pandora's box, <laughs> yeah. but there are implications there, here. There are There is so much going on, Bill, and we're trying to tie it all together, but obviously the waterfront hotel redevelopment consideration is one. The mobility hub discussion and coming up with our downtown plans and our plans around our other mobility hubs. Uh, um, we're looking at parking, uh, as I think I mentioned, as, as a big issue. Uh, we're, we're, we're struggling with what to do with a slow park marina, which we can talk about another time. Uh, there are so many issues that this is probably the busiest period of time um, I've had since I've been mayor, sir, and, and maybe since I've been on council in the last 11 years with the tremendous substantive decisions that we have to be making. Yeah, but I mean, from the glasses half full perspective here, these are all these are all concerns and challenges that are the result of, of growth and potential growth and people knocking on the door saying we want to be part of that. Oh, exactly. That's a good thing. So it, it, it is a good thing. I know a lot of cities that aren't growing, and I'd much rather be in Burlington than the cities that aren't, that aren't growing. No, it's a case of shaping and forming uh, the, the market forces that I work here and the tremendous desire that people have to live in Burlington. We're going to continue to grow. Uh, we have to do it well. We have to do it right, and, uh, and we will. Yeah, you mentioned the Marina Board. There's a ton of other things we didn't even get to today, so I'll have to have you back in again real soon for this. Thanks so much, Mr. Mayor. Thanks, Bill. Appreciate it. Thank Burlington you. Burlington Mayor Rick Goldring and uh, the Mayor's Town Hall. The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on AM 900 CHML.